Hi, thanks for listening to Not Another Science podcast by the Edinburgh University Science Media Society, or USCI for short. We'd like to welcome you to the first episode of the fifth season of the podcast. My name is Emily, and along with Emily, yes, there's two of us, we'll be hosting each episode. We are also greatly supported by our podcast manager, Katie, who is working behind the scenes to bring you podcast guests from as many fields of science as possible. All three of us are incredibly excited and honoured to be delivering the podcast this year. Its creation in 2020 was born out of a love for science communication, and we hope you'll hear how much we are excited about it too. Thanks for that, Emily. I'm the other Emily, and also super excited to get started with season five of the podcast. I was sadly unavailable to host this time, but you'll hopefully be hearing more of me soon. Before we start, I'd like to mention that this podcast is sponsored by Griner Bio One, supplying laboratory, diagnostic and medical products to research institutions, higher education, the NHS and others across the UK. For details of the full product range, visit www.gbo.com. In this first episode, Emily talked to Dr. Megan Perry and Robin Hiley about their collaborative musical, The Mold That Changed the World, which is hitting US theatres in Washington and Atlanta this autumn after a third successful fringe run. Much like the musical, their conversation gave insights into the life of Alexander Fleming, his discovery of penicillin, and also some very interesting discussion of possible solutions to the problem of antimicrobial resistance, or AMR. You'll also get a snippet of Kaylee music thrown in there too. My name is Megan Perry. I'm I'm an infectious diseases doctor and I also do research on antimicrobial resistance. And I approached Robin about creating a musical about antibiotics and antibiotic resistance with the view to improve public perception and understanding of antibiotics. I'm Robin Hiley. I'm CEO and artistic director of Shiraz Theatre Company. I'm also a composer. Shiraz is a professional theatre company that's actually based in Edinburgh and we produce shows for the professional stage and we also do community projects working with schools and also volunteer members of the community. So The Mould That Changed the World is a musical title that is bound to catch someone's eye you immediately think oh well what could possibly be about so um, I suppose in your own words what is the musical about and why why was the story picked? What was significant about the story to you? Well, that's a big question, isn't it, Megan? <laughs> I think when we first, when Robin agreed to write a, a musical about antibiotics, we kind of sat down and for a good couple of sessions and kind of talked about antibiotics and talked about antibiotics' role in history and and why they were so important and how they changed people's lives and how they continue to impact people's lives and how in the future if they don't work that will have a negative impact on on people's lives and we talked through different stories relating to antibiotics and how we might be able to tie all of that together and I think Robin maybe you can take the story on from there we read some biographies (laughs) yeah we did um I mean, it was a it was a big learning curve for me because the the concepts or issue of antimicrobial resistance is not necessarily one that's spoken about um, regularly. Or certainly back when Megan came to me in um, when when was it in about 2017 or something, the initial idea came. Um, yeah, so there was a big learning curve in terms of the science and the understanding of it. Um, and my kind of 
you know, to an extent, my mind was blown by by the sort of prevalence of, of AMR in not just a clinical setting in, you know, in the the places that I can recognize, like going to the GP and pressure being put on your local GP to, to prescribe or the use of it in hospitals and that whole just in case concept. But for me, um, the, the incredible thing was really humanity's use in, you know, in agriculture, in, and in farming and in all sorts of places that how would you have any idea that they were using them here? And, and it's just so completely counterintuitive given that it's so clear that they are a very precious thing. For me, the reason that Megan came to, to us as an arts organization was clearly because we, we needed a new way to communicate this issue. And Megan and I talked a lot about sort of empathy and kind of heart overhead. And Megan has a lovely little um, anecdote. Well, it's not an anecdote. It's a it's like like a cited um, academic quote or something that talks about anecdote over statistics and the power of it. And as the show has grown, this has kind of been it has been actually been quite good for the project that pandemic happened in the last two or three years because you're, we're now at a point where a lot of influential people, a lot of influential bodies, governments, even are realizing that there needs to be needs to be a new way to communicate a public health issue um and i mean that's why we're that's why i'm sitting in america at the moment with the show about to run over here in a couple of different cities so for me it always came back to the storytelling and how do you find a story that can um that can touch people's hearts so that then they can go away and feel like they need to do something about it and we kind of like gravitated towards as you might when you start thinking about Antibiotics. We gravitate towards Alexander Fleming and penicillin. And Megan mentioned that we we read a few biographies. And most of those biographies were of Alexander Fleming. Um, and and really, we really when I when I got to reading about his kind of history and and where he where he grew up and his formative years that he spent. What once he'd left Airshift, he spent in a volunteer, the London Scottish Regiment in London, a volunteer regiment since he was a young teenager. And seeing his part in the war and how the story of penicillin is so tied up in not just the First World War, but the Second World War as well. And the sort of chance and the luck that went with not just the the famous story about his discovery, which I'm sure lots of the listeners will know, but the luck of him actually even being alive by making one one little decision that he was going to leave his volunteer regiment after 14 years, a couple couple months out of World War One beginning, to go and um, serve in the Royal Army Medical Corps. All his friends that he had from the London Scottish Regiment were the first volunteer regiment to be called up to the First World War, and they all died. Fleming's story is tied up with this kind of like heart-wrenching tale of of like personal loss and for me when I started reading all of that I was like oh wow that's perfect for a musical <laughs> it's also a story that needs to be told and the tragic thing that we try to portray in the show is that there's this great life of of this of this great man who possibly made the most significant discovery of the of the 20th century and he's a flawed character just like all of us but now we are essentially through stupidity completely ruining this this man's legacy and we're completely shooting ourselves in the foot as well um but the thing that people can get on board with and really 
feel kind of sad about or empathize in terms of the storytelling of the piece is is that we're doing that to Fleming and is that he he feels that he didn't do enough to try and make sure that the public understood this problem. I learned a lot from you talking about Alexander Fleming, like his Wikipedia page does not, you know, talk about all this great loss. And I suppose there's the issue there of the butterfly effect. Like he could have very easily gone into World War One as a serving officer and he would never have made this amazing discovery that's helped so many people. Absolutely. Yeah. And he, I mean, even in the even during the war, he was sent with his colleagues from the bacteriology department at St. Mary's University. He was sent to a casino in Boulogne in the north of France where he set up a unit for the treatment of wound infection. So he was in one of these big, big, it was like the 14th Red Cross General Hospital or, or Allied Forces General Hospital. Um, so he was day in, day out, treating these soldiers who had these terrible wounds that you only get from the mechanised weaponry that had just been invented. He, he wasn't on the front line himself. And... He wasn't on the front line, but he was treating these men who were just like his friends who were coming every single day and... They, they did make a sort of a discovery per se during that time, which was the, the kind of prescribed treatments by the war office were not actually helping. And he had an alternative and the armchair generals didn't, didn't listen to him. So he was very frustrated. He was there with a, another famous scientist called Sir Armouth Wright, who was the big, big cheese at the time. And they weren't able to change this, which was another frustration. He felt that, again, he could have save more lives if they could follow their advice rather than that of the, the, the existing thing advice on how to deal with this problem. I think the lovely thing about the play that Robin has developed is that not only does it teach about antibiotics and antibiotic resistance, but it's got a lot of other lessons in there in terms of perseverance um, and dogged determination in pursuit of your cause as a, as a scientist um, and a lot of the challenges in relation to drug discovery and a lot of communication challenges in terms of getting the message across and then this regret that Fleming feels that he didn't manage to get his message across about uh, resistance and being prudent and careful with your antibiotics. And it's also a wonderful history lesson. So through the play, there's, there's so much learning to be had and people can come feeling um, like they know a lot about antibiotics. But I would say, as you have just expressed now, I think everybody will learn something new about Fleming's life through seeing it. And do you think that Alexander Fleming is right to feel regret? Do you think he did everything he could? I think it was also new in terms of the point where penicillin was put into mass production and use. And already he started to talk about resistance because he's a bacteriologist and he understands that, that push and pull between the bacteria and any threat to their survival. And I guess resistance wasn't being found scientifically broadly at, at that point. And so I think that the fact that he did mention it in his Nobel Prize speech shows that it really was on his mind. And, you know, you can't get a more high impact speech than your Nobel Prize speech. So the character that Robin has produced that we can see a Fleming, we can see that he's somebody who thinks about things very hard and can be self-critical and which comes through in the biographies as well. So I think he did what he could. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that I and Thomas and James and the other people who, who have worked on writing the show 
we never had the opportunity to meet Fleming, obviously. But it was very, very important in terms of story arc and storytelling and needing to create a character that people can empathize with. You know, it was very important to use the experiences that we understood that he had and kind of interpret how he might have felt when we know what his character traits are. So the regret is tied up in him knowing about this personal loss of losing all his friends and kind of support structure that he had all through his teen years and his early 20s when he was kind of like growing up and him being able to recognize that his drug could save these people, which it duly did in the Second World War. And then when you're coming to then to the end of your life and you're kind of more self-reflective and thinking about what was your life like, what are you leaving behind, sort of, I think, common things for everybody to think when, when they do get to the end of their life, it would be then natural for him to, to think, oh my goodness, how is this thing that I've left behind, is it going to manage to, to prevail or is it not? And that's actually the way that we managed to hook the resistance thing in properly. We use this kind of like the moment when your life flashes before your eyes at the, at the end of your life. And he's sort of in a place between life and death. And actually the whole story is told. And the whole story is kind of narrated in a conversation between Fleming and another character called Rose, who's quite an enigmatic character. We're not ever quite completely sure who she is throughout it. It could be Fleming talking to himself. It could be Fleming talking to some sort of mother nature death kind character but the point is is that that conversation gives the opportunity to then kind of bend time a bit and think about what might happen in the future which is our present Fleming's able to kind of see his worst nightmares realized so I think Fleming was a total boss you know I think he was a real legend like all of us like there were flawed character traits there's kind of a lot written about the Fleming myth in inverted commas about whether he should have got all the attention that he did get and whether that it should have been more spread out between some of the other academics who were involved in developing it in the first place. But, you know, he had the presence of mind to notice something in an unusual place um, when nobody else did and fight for it for quite a long period of time when nobody else took him seriously. So I think there's some good credit due to good old famous Sir Alexander Fleming. And I know I'm biased. But I definitely feel you definitely warm to Fleming a lot over over the course of the play, and you understand his like issues that he has and his traumas, um, and 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 that's really effective. The actor who plays him—it <laughs> sounds like we're blowing up, blowing the trumpet over the production—but he's been very well cast. It's called Jeremy Rose, and he's sort of British actor, been on the scene for a long, long time, walked the boards in many, many places, and he as a an individual offstage is very humble and um, very lovely, sort of like. One of the things that we do with this project is we actually have an ensemble, so the sort of chorus line, who are actually played by local scientists and healthcare professionals who, who volunteer to be in the show. Audition. Some of whom are f- were from the University of Edinburgh, actually, mm, in yes. um, And... Yeah, and they perform alongside the West End actors, a lot of whom are West End actors and some some based up in Scotland as well. And you create this lovely community environment between between these two groups of professionals. But as a mark of a mark of Jeremy, just and I think it's probably something that Fleming would have done too, every single morning before the rehearsal starts, he'd walk in and say hello to every single member of the room. And yeah, he just he does a wonderful job of portraying Fleming and like portraying the complexities of this whole 
of this whole problem and being a deep thinker. So, yeah. And just from a University of Edinburgh perspective, we had a lovely moment where you may be aware that the University of Edinburgh have um, sponsored Fleming Fellows, which is from the Fleming Fund. And so they're people who live in um, Africa working as a scientist or healthcare professional, and then they come over here. And there was a, a collection of people who are Fleming mentors came to the show and they got really excited because they were like, oh, we'll get a picture with Alexander Fleming at the end. We actually met um, Fleming's niece as well, who came to see the production and was kind of, um, she's quite a shy character too, but she was really, really blown away by, by the show and thought it, was, it was, thought it was really wonderful that we were using his life in order to spread this message essentially, so just speaking now with with you two like I'm surprised by the amount of emotion that's been sort of put into the the musical and the and the writing and sort of having Fleming have a personality it sounds obvious now but it's just something that didn't sort of occur to me and which brings me to ask when you were writing the composition Robin for the for the musical what sort of styles had influenced you and did you have an idea of how you wanted the audience to feel? So I guess writing musical or coming from the point of a composer, like I, I have lots and lots of different influences. I kind of like studied a classical music degree and have a composition monasters and played in folk rock band as well and have a lot of Scottish traditional music in my on my mum's side of the family. And I guess my influences are there are many, um, and it's hard to hard to pinpoint them exactly. But when it comes to actually kind of writing a writing a show, and it's like, it seems like the most enormous task if you think of it. And I guess you do it in bits and pieces, and you're thinking about a story arc, thinking about different points in this story that you need to portray in order to tell the story and break it down into scenes, and then thinking this particular scene. Well, well, let's take an example. So, so when Fleming is leaving his his beloved H company in the London Scottish Regiment. After 14 years, and he's saying he's just about to leave and go, go and work for the Royal Army Medical Corps. It's been a very difficult decision for him. He's saying goodbye to his friends of 14 years that he's been spending his evenings and weekends with on his kind of national service. Like, what should that sound like? What's the sort of soundscape, perhaps, that is going to tell that little story and, and I guess you then build it up like building blocks and it needs to have some upbeat elements of it this one actually has a little Kaylee in it this number and you, you have the captain of the regiment toasts Fleming first and we hear a little bit from Fleming and then the, the kind of lads all, all say private 6392 which was his his number in the regiment this mess hall honors you and then they go into a Kaylee dance and they celebrate with one another and so it's to answer your question in this number in particular what does it have to sound like? What do you want to make the audience feel? There has to be a balance between kind of nostalgia, but then that, that wonderful, like, uplifting element that kind of um, Scottish traditional music has to tie, and, and are very much tied that kind of idea with the London Scottish Regiment all through the story of the show, and they kind of come back to Fleming as memories in the show. So you're always able to use that Scottish traditional sound to, to, to help with that storytelling and tie those people to to him whenever they come back and then I guess you do that similarly for lots of other parts of the story. One day you have something that resembles a musical.
my regiment for fourteen years to London Scottish volunteers. a great achievement to have Megan sort of this idea and now in the fringe by 2018 and then you've done multiple fringes and you've been to London and now it's about to be performed in in the States did you ever think that the musical would become like an international thing did you ever think that it would reach the international stage we wrote it in our first uh, um, email to the funders. We said, you know, this would have appeal nationally and then hopefully in the future further afield. But I don't know whether mm. we ever believed it would happen. <laughs> we believed it. <laughs> so, I think I think I've, I believed it as it's grown. Yeah. You know, I kind of like don't wouldn't really dare to believe that at the beginning. But, you know. It's an important message. Um, like, you know, it's got some. Dare I say, it's got some good music in it. It's got good, good lessons in it. My yeah. children uh, sing Robin's songs all the time. I mean, like maybe they've heard them a little bit more, but not that many times. And suddenly they'll like kind of burst into the kitchen singing one of the the melodies from the musical. So that they're pretty catchy tunes, I would say. But, you know, there's a history of this with of science and music. You know, when HIV first came out, they used drama in, in different African countries to, like, spread the message of how HIV was transmitted as an urgent way to, to get the message across to lots of people. So it's, it's not a new concept, but it's definitely, hopefully, an effective one. Excellent, yeah. Megan, you, you're a medical doctor who specialises in infectious disease. So what sparked your interest in in doing research in AMR? I actually started doing research into resistance in in India. I'm looking at a parasite called leishmaniasis. And there were certain parts of the world where the parasite was incredibly resistant and other parts of the world where it wasn't resistant to this particular treatment. And we were looking at uh, different reasons why that might be. And then when I came home from doing my PhD in India, I realized how big a deal this was happening with common garden 
bacteria rather than um, tropical parasites every day in the UK and and all over the world. And that it was incredibly relevant to the to my day to day practice as a doctor and that there could be a, a true synergy between doing research in antimicrobial resistance with and my clinical practice. So I've done quite broad ranging um, research, including analyzing sewage coming out of hospitals to look at the abundance of antimicrobial resistance genes to, I guess, probably the most extreme from that is leading the evaluation of the impact of the musical on performing children, uh, where we looked at kind of their knowledge and their behavior using psychological theoretical domains framework. And then now uh, my research is much more in relation to antimicrobial stewardship and the use of different antibiotics in urinary tract infections um, and how they're very much overused and overdiagnosed in the UK. But Robin's written this amazing scene in the in the musical of a GP waiting room where the patients are putting this high degrees of pressure on GPs to prescribe them the antibiotics because the antibiotics are going to solve all of their problems and and I see that on a day-to-day basis that that people's perception needs to dramatically change for us to be able to just utilize antibiotics for when we really need them. So your you say your research is involved with urinary tract infections and um, I did a bit of research on like the rate of AMR in in UTIs and uh, Public Health England have actually reported that one third of UTIs that are caused by E. coli are resistant to key antibiotics. And I suppose my first question is, do you know the mechanisms by which a bacteria may become resistant to antibiotics? So I guess that's a pretty huge question um, from my perspective. But um, the statistic you have is about an antibiotic called trimethoprin um, against E. coli. And what we find is that anybody who takes trimethoprin, they end up with a resistant E. coli in their gut. And then the next time somebody gets a UTI, it's because of the fact that those gut bacteria have been exposed to trimethoprin. And they've actually learned how to disable the enzyme that the trimethoprin works against. Yeah, this all sounds very scary and and hopeless. And um, is there hope for combating AMR? For example, finding new antibiotics, is that the correct course to go down, would you say? I think, um, well, I guess because of the fact that I'm interested in, in doing this big musical public engagement project is I think that the change needs to come from the public themselves in terms of the way that they perceive antibiotics and that we need to start at the beginning and for people to take less antibiotics um, within the primary care setting and there's so much press about superbugs and superbugs are the end of a line superbugs they tend to have developed because there's been a a large degree of um, antimicrobial exposure and they can get transmitted from person to person but they also can develop within one person because they're being exposed to lots of different antibiotics. And it's completely scary to look at the computer and see the the readout of the sensitivities of a bacteria. And I often think of Robin at this point, and I see like seven different classes of antibiotics and they've all got a big R beside them, which says resistant. And you've got like one antibiotic left that you can use to treat uh, a patient with. Um, And this often happens in the context of people with urinary tract infections, which is something that I look after on a day-to-day basis. I think we do need new drugs. 
but the bacteria will learn to become resistant to them too. So it, it you know, perception and behavior has to change and new drugs are definitely very useful because we've got to this point where we have these very, very multi-drug resistant bugs, but they're not the full answer. And there is hope. Robin, you can talk about the hope. <laughs> oh, there, oh, there is hope. Yeah. Um, I've had a, not being a scientist, um, but being somebody who's been asked to try to translate this, in inverted commas, into something that, well, like we were talking about at the beginning, can touch people's hearts and maybe make them go away and think about something in a new light and in a different way. And, and as the project's grown, I have found myself in some bizarre situations with very influential people like singing to the British ambassador in the embassy in Washington, along with a whole load of people from the Hill, or sitting in the UK's um, ambassador to the UN's residence with all sorts of pharma executives and Dame Sally Davis on my right. These people are all taking the problem very, very seriously, and they see the nuance of it. And there's huge hope because it is being taken seriously by all, by these people. But the thing that's so difficult about it is is that it does come down to like kind of grassroots personal responsibility, which, like I was saying earlier, we, we kind of like witnessing the pandemic and realizing how important individual actions are and actually seeing how, you know, majority of a population is actually when they actually understand the the scale of an issue they're capable of making personal changes to an extent because um, they see that it's relevant to their loved ones, their closest people, and they understand the impact that, that small actions can have on, a, on big things like life and death. And I think that's the thing that needs to be understood about antimicrobial resistance. It needs to be talked about in a different way in order for people to be able to appreciate that. And you're never going to get, you're never going to get everybody to do that. There were still people who, you know, didn't want to, didn't want to wear their masks or don't want to get their vaccinations or, or whatever. Don't want to get into that. But um, you're never going to get everybody to think about it. But it is it is about just kind of like highlighting that small personal responsibility. And it's very, very similar, as I see it, to the climate change issues. It's almost one and the same thing. It's about humans <laughs> messing with ecosystems, basically. And for me, all of, this, all of the science that Megan's just been talking about in her career is being very, very inspiring to kind of get a little window into all of those kind of specialisms and the kind of root cause of all these problems and then being able to try to work with Megan to come up with concepts that can kind of translate that and then taking that also to like the people that I work with in terms of, you know, writing the script and the, the, the dramaturgical decisions that have to be made and, and kind of which is a bit of a science in itself uh, what do we need to say at this point at, at eight minutes into the show for then the audience to think this by the time we get to 73 minutes sort of thing so yeah antibiotics are definitely worth saving <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're giving a very diplomatic answer Megan but they definitely are <laughs> it sounds like the both of you really appreciate each other's different specialisms and field of research so um I guess the answer to you know, did you enjoy working together is is a profound yes. I have. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
<laughs> it's been amazing. I play music myself, and and so it's just been really exciting watching the seed of the idea grow. And then I'd meet Robin, and he'd play me another kind of bit of a track or a scene or anything. And just that that first developmental period was really exciting. And then watching Robin working with Thomas, the writer, to turn the musical into a full-length musical has has been incredible. And the depth that now comes through from the full-length musical is is profound and and moving and it just sparks so much enthusiasm you know people coming out of the show are just absolutely brimming over and we were very lucky to have the chief medical officer and the chief nursing officer come and watch the show at the Edinburgh Fringe and they couldn't have been more positive about the project itself and about how talented Robin and Thomas and all of the actors and also all of the wonderful healthcare professionals and scientists who just go on stage and just give it that all. It's absolutely incredible, the energy that comes through because everybody's very passionate about the music and about the message that they're singing about. Yeah. Yeah, it's a hugely important part of the way the project is running at the moment, of of the fact that um, we we do have these volunteer members of the cast and you're sort of bringing these two groups of professionals together. And a lot of the reasons that our volunteer scientists and healthcare professionals come to do it is A, because they understand the scope of the AMR issue, but B, because it's it's on their bucket list to kind of be in a show at the fringe or, you know, over like we're doing exactly the same thing over here and have been just kind of, you know, we've got loads of members, loads of people from the CDC or we've got loads of kind of people working in... Um, in healthcare and science over here as well. And it's just very kind of special to see these different communities kind of spawned by something that we started in a little cafe in Edinburgh. And it kind of grows grows a bit of a life of its own. Like it's the sum of the 50 plus individuals who are part of it. And just like when we hand over songs and a script to these seasoned actors who find the very best parts of the writing also having this different group of professionals who are involved who have lots of knowledge that none of us have um just 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 like or just like the knowledge that Megan has been imparting yeah it it leads to a very kind of exciting melting pot of of skills and expertise and yeah yeah and uh, where can any listeners that might be based in the in the states at the moment catch your show so it's on it's on in Washington, D.C., and it's on in Atlanta this fall, as you say, over here. Um, <laughs> and we're working on plans or afoot to take it to other cities in, in due course. But, well, the best place to go to is moldthatschangetheworld.com. And you can find all the details there because I can't remember what dates we're running. It's all a sort of like five-week tour of uh, one place to the next. This is the other Emily back again, and I hope you enjoyed listening to Megan and Robin discuss their work and the fascinating historical and scientific story of antibiotics. I'm certainly very jealous of our American listeners who have a chance to catch the musical this autumn. Here's hoping they'll bring it back to the UK soon. This podcast is brought to you by the Edinburgh University Science Media. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work and find out about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the university and beyond. If you have any feedback for us or if you'd like to get in touch with a question or a suggestion you can reach us on our Facebook page Edinburgh University Science Media or at our Twitter at USCI that's at E-U-S-C-I. 
You can also drop us an email at usi.podcast at gmail.com. And you can find the latest issue of our magazine at usi.org.uk. This episode was hosted by Emily Southworth and me, Emily Oliver. The podcast logo was designed by USI Chief Editor, Apple Chu, and the awesome podcast episode art was designed by Amy Perks. The intro music is an edited version of Bunkerama by Kevin MacLeod, and the outro music is an edited version of Footballs in Space by Professor Colin Campbell. Thank you for listening, and until next time, remember to keep it science.